What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So two episodes ago, that's Blister Podcast episode number 150, when Cody Townsend and I were having our reviewing the news conversation, Cody mentioned a story about a snowcat operation that was, let's just say, at odds with a producer of backcountry guidebooks. And I mentioned then in that conversation with Cody that I know said producer of backcountry guidebooks and was actually overdue in having him on this very podcast. And so today is the day that we make good on that promised conversation. Andy Sovic is the very interesting person behind Beacon Guidebooks, and in fact, he is so interesting that, as you'll hear, I think Wes Anderson needs to make a movie about his life. Andy also might have the coolest parents of all time, and he is a publisher of guidebooks while also being someone who really dislikes the term guidebooks. And in this conversation, he'll tell you why. But what we know for sure these days is that sales of backcountry guidebooks are up and more and more people are heading out. And so Andy and I talk about a lot of the relevant issues surrounding these two facts. We discuss the question of whether or not backcountry guidebooks should even exist. We talk about the responsibilities that come with publishing such books. And we talk about the EIGHTS system, which is an avalanche safety rating system that isn't nearly as well known in the US as it is in Canada and in parts of Europe. But Andy is a champion of the EIGHTS system, and in this conversation, he'll explain why. Now, while you are listening to this conversation, I would very much encourage you to check out beaconguidebooks.com so that you will be able to see the various atlases and maps that we will be discussing here. And now, just before we get going here, and since many of us are now already skiing again, and the rest of you will likely be skiing or snowboarding or sledding very soon, it is a very good time to remind you about spot insurance. Now, we've talked on previous podcasts about what spot offers, but to remind you, Spot provides injury insurance that is actually affordable. It starts at $25 a month and covers you up to $20,000 each time you're injured. Your Spot plan works whether you have health insurance or not, and it works with any existing insurance plans that you may already have. Finally, since it is a monthly subscription, you'll be charged on the same day every month and you can then rest easy knowing the spot has you covered 24-7 worldwide. Just to connect all the dots for you, let me give you one very recent example of why spot coverage is a great idea. Today, at exactly 11.20 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, Luke Kappa sent me this exact text, and I quote, We definitely need to crash more in front of the camera this year because we can always use more crash photos, end quote. And so, if you happen to have a managing editor like mine who tells you that you definitely need to crash more, 
Or you have the sort of friends who are likely to tell you that you definitely need to crash more. Well, then you definitely need to head over to blister.getspot.com and get yourself some spot injury insurance. So go check it out at blister.getspot.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Andy Sovic from Blister HQ. Andy Sovic, welcome to Blister Headquarters. Thanks. I'm honored to be here. My first question to you is really how on earth you became a person who makes guidebooks. I would like to encourage you, don't spare too many details here. Like, take us back to the beginning. Like, where did you grow up? What were you into, you know, sort of as a kid and young adult? And how did you get to this spot? That's a good question. I'll probably uh, realize some things as I as I think out loud here and, and reflect on it all. Why I do this, because I wouldn't have expected myself to do this either. If you asked me 10 years ago or 20 years ago, even I grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, on the front range. Uh, my folks had moved there from the Midwest and were kind of back to the landers. They were what what we would call hippies, but they don't let themselves be called hippies. Hippies to them were people who did drugs a lot and they weren't that. They they wanted to, you know, live a sustainable life, you know, grow all their own food, go back to the land, can, you know, as part of that 70s movement. Anyway, so they moved to Colorado to do that. My father was a carpenter. He built greenhouses and later moved on to be a contractor and designer of passive solar homes throughout the Front Range. And my mom was a teacher turned firefighter. She was one of the first women firefighters in Colorado. Pretty cool. Dude, this is all amazing so far. She was awesome. These are the coolest yeah. hippies I've ever heard of. Yeah, I, I think, and they, you know, they ultimately, I think with a lot of people who went to that back to the land movement, they ultimately, you know, found a bit more of a balance between, you know, lifestyle and activity and work and raising kids and all that stuff. But we grew up with a pretty mean garden and apple orchard. It was, it was amazing huh. and a wonderful childhood, really wonderful. We, we grew up just uh, outside of Fort Collins, actually, like kind of between the, the town and the mountains. And my parents were way into going hiking and cross-country skiing. And that was our thing. We, we went hiking, backpacking, canoeing, and then cross-country skiing. We literally pulled out skis from the dumpster behind a ski shop, like a, like a thrift, thrift, like consignment ski shop in Fort Collins. My parents found a bunch of cross-country skis and huh. that's that was my first pair of skis and their first pairs of skis and uh, so they were getting into it but bringing us along with them so it was an awesome introduction but wow. but unique for sure and yeah so we skied up on cameron pass a lot and uh, hiked around the front range a bunch and yeah it was a, it was a really cool childhood i'd say it was uh it was it was ideal you know looking back on it and that's what got me into it for sure my dad had had majored in geography and so he's a total geography buff, even though he turned into a carpenter contractor. He was way into it and taught us how to read maps from an early age. And he was very enthusiastic about, about maps. We had globes and atlases around the house. And it was very important to him that we understood geography in all ways, like geography of our local area, understanding the geology of it and the context of where we were and understanding where our ancestors were from and where our parents lived and, and then world geography just basic you know like where's south america where's asia you know seven continents seven seas it was all very important to him and it reflects on me for sure are your folks still in fort collins mm -hmm. they are yeah still same place they they're about a mile from where i was born and raised huh. and yeah they live a wonderful a wonderful life out there still hiking and cross-country skiing 
on the same skis that were pulled from the dumpster. Oh I'll, my God. I'll have you know. I like gear and skis and I switch often, not as often as some, but uh, certainly more often than my dad, who still <laughs> skis in wool knickers with the gaiters, like these green lace-up gaiters and these old leather boots. And he's had them since I was well before I was born, probably. And there are these old, uh, <laughs> these old Rossignol, Rossignol skis. It doesn't huh. take much. I mean, three yeah. pin binding Rossignol ski. Like, yep. what's going to happen in thirty years? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> so, and yeah, they, so they still ski on that. They like mow out and pack out a track around there. They live on five acres of land, and uh, they mow out the grass before it snows, and then it snows, and they pack out a little trail and they ski around their property. And uh, they're in their seventies now, you know. So that's that's almost the extent of their of their Nordic skiing anymore. But but yeah, so that's 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 where I come from. <laughs> you, we were talking before we hit the record button about like our, our life goals. I think my new one, <laughs> my new one is just to meet your parents now. <laughs> yeah. This sounds amazing. So do they we'll make do a it? a family podcast yeah. next time we come up. Yeah. Do they make it to CB? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they do. No, they visit often. Uh, so I have a nine-year-old son and now they, now they come even more than they used to, to visit the, the grandson for sure. This is good news for me. Okay. We'll make it happen. So... Amazing, much, <laughs> much better opening than I had even could in like my wildest dreams. But so we've got a good sense of like where you started and then you're getting familiar with maps and the backcountry fairly early on in your life. Talk about like high school, college years. What are yeah, you up to? Yeah. So I was way into it, into hiking and skiing and whatever my parents would, would bring me out into. I was very complacent, compliant, and and uh, happy to do whatever my parents brought me to. I also got into soccer. Uh, this is not going to segue into anything. I was way into soccer and and played you know varsity 5A through high school, which was awesome, but I, it didn't carry on beyond that. However, um, around the age of 14 or 15, I got way into uh, like the mountain man lifestyle. I started reading survivalist books, all the survivalist books you could find, all the hiking books, um, and then like naturalist stuff, the Edward Abbey's and the Aldo Leopold and stuff like that. I was reading as a, as a young teenager and, and started to envision myself as like a buckskin wearing hatchet toting, you know, squirrel skinning guy and, and started, you know, trying to do that at the best you can do at 14. I wasn't living in the mountains. We were living, you know, on a, in the flats right next to the mountains. So I started really like getting thirsty and hungry for, for being in the mountains and actually getting after it. And, you know, I, I still was into, like I said, soccer and candy and girls and stuff like, so it wasn't like a pure, like 100% focus, like one of those guys stories. It was, it wasn't, but I certainly got into that and I wanted to be kind of, I wanted to ski really well and I wanted to bike really well. I got way into mountain biking and that was in the early nineties. So mountain biking was quite young. And, and so I was watching Ned over and, and I started getting into those sports at the same time. And I realized that like mountain sports and skinning squirrels are two different things, really. Like they don't line up. But I didn't know that at age 15. So I was just putting it all together. So I got way more into skiing. And then fortunately for me, I really wanted to become a back. I, I really wanted to ski backcountry. I wanted to ski peaks. I wanted to get out there and, and way deep. And more and more every year I would try to go. We'd go skiing maybe at a resort once or twice a year as a kid. It was still, even though it was cheap, you know, quote unquote, back then, it was still too expensive for us. We didn't, we didn't have a lot of money, but we got out once or twice a year. And then once I started making my own money working in the summers and during breaks, I was able to buy my own 
10-day pass at A-Basin and, and get into that. And then a mentor came along, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, a guy that had been, that was seven years older than me. He had just gotten back from a Knowles course. He was teaching Knowles. He had taken Knowles and then he was, became a, a Knowles instructor. His name is AJ Linnell. And he was back at his parents' house in Fort Collins and needed someone to go out with. I was 18 at the time and a senior in high school and super frustrated. Didn't, I didn't like high school anymore. I did not like school. I did not like the social aspect. Like I was really antsy to get out in the mountains. And AJ was a really enthusiastic skier who needed a partner basically. And our parents were friends and we had known each other a little bit from childhood. But like I said, he was seven years older than me. So he was like, you want to go skiing? I was like, yes, anytime you go like I'll ditch school, like every weekend, every day, like, yes, hundred percent enthusiasm. And that's what he wanted. And so he was like, great. I'll teach you how to, you know, use a avalanche beacon and I'll teach you how to dig and I'll teach you how to, how to, you know, all the, all the stuff so that you can be a competent partner. And I just was so hungry for it that I took it all quickly and we started going skiing. It, it blew my mind at the time to know, to finally, suddenly find somebody who said, you know, let's go ski a basin. We'll sleep in the parking lot. And the next morning we'll, we'll get up super early. We'll ski a 14er and then we'll drive down uh, for the afternoon. We'll be in golden. We'll climb uh, North Table Mountain, North Table Mesa. And, and then we'll go see some girls in Boulder. And I was like, my mind was just exploding, right? Like I just couldn't believe that it was actually happening. Like, and that was, and that was it for me. By the way, I cannot wait to watch the Wes Anderson movie about all of this. Like I'm just picturing in my head, <laughs> you know, you little boy, Andy, with like the, the Davy Crockett, like <laughs> coonskin hat that's too big. And then when you're 18, you're like, we, you know, we go fast forward and you're learning how to dig pits and stuff, but you're still wearing that hat <laughs> and like skiing a basin in it. And then also like ski touring and then you're done and you go to the bar to meet girls and you still have that hat on. Like, this is going to be an amazing, amazing movie. And uh, it's just writing itself. So thank you for this. Yeah, you can you can take this and do what you want with it. You okay, know, I'd like some royalties, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm gonna get to work later on the script, and then we'll we'll try to get it to Wes Anderson. It's literally like what this is just all falling into place. So yeah, I was a weird kid. I was I was a little bit weird for sure, and uh, but but I was but I was super happy. This was exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, it doesn't it doesn't work. That back to the land and back to the earth lifestyle had had you know resonated with me growing up, right? And it's it's actually kind of come around. Not that I wear buckskin or coon hats at all, but we certainly have kind of come back to that as a family. It's like apart from from my business and and whatnot. So and you're currently living in Gunnison. Mm -hmm. Yep, right on a trail. Yeah, we live in we live in in Gunnison, just outside of town, um, on a little what they call in like England and New Zealand lifestyle blocks, um, kind of homesteady type place, a lot of garden, chickens, uh, surrounded by cows, you know, greenhouse, a lot of canning goes on, a lot of, a lot of bone broth making yep. <laughs> and preserving. So yeah, that's, we, that's still part of our life. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I hunt and, and we do all of our own game processing and all that. So there's a, uh, there's still a little bit of that, but, but, yeah, at the same time, yeah, taking avalanche courses and and uh, learning how to ascend peaks has nothing to do with that, really. Oh, well, on the surface, anyway, culturally, 
right? But it's all it's all connecting with mountains and and nature. And to me, it's actually probably very similar. It's all part of the same lifestyle. It doesn't seem to be a juxtaposition when I think about it that way. So okay, we left off in the story. You what was the guy's name you met? AJ Linnell. AJ, you've met AJ. AJ's showing you the ropes of life and he's like your wingman. That's how far we got into the story. So like move us now toward like what what are the steps where we haven't yet gotten to your where you're writing your first guidebook. Right. So I was really lucky to have a, a mentor, right? And not everyone is is so lucky. I didn't have to take a single avalanche course at the time, you know, I, later on it's still great continuing education. But um I got this fast track in to to learning how to read terrain and how to understand the mountains and how to uh ski safely and, and be home soon he was he became an avalanche three instructor for Knowles and uh he, he was he was an amazing mountain guide he passed away uh five uh, five or six years ago now in a plane crash but a uh, very accomplished mountain guide and mountaineer and so yeah i was very lucky to have that mentor but not everyone's so lucky and not everyone can have that kind of education along with experience all happening at the same time, especially with eyes wide open like I did, like I was just a sponge, you know, and that's all I wanted in life. A lot of people these days, they want a backcountry ski, but it comes along with everything else that they already do in life. So when I left, um, we'll, tr we'll try to race ahead here. When I left Fort Collins, I went to school uh, at college at Fort Lewis College in Durango. And that was, you know, the only place where I could go in state and be as far away from, from a home as possible, which is like every, every kid's goal, but in state was, was important just for finances. And, uh, Durango was amazing, right? Like rock climbing, kayaking and skiing was just, you know, 99% of what we did. And then the other 1% of the time was school. Uh, I actually was way into school, uh, sociology and political science and Spanish we're all with three parts of a major. Hmm. Yeah. I loved it. It was a really cool education and it went very well with uh, backcountry skiing a lot. So we went all the time skiing and kayaking, climbing, and, and just general shenanigans at Fort Lewis. We talked about what we started doing as we were skiing, me and my friends, I, we I had an amazing group of backcountry skiers all kind of on the same page. Some guys just getting into it. Some guys who had had mentors, other guys who had grown up in mountain towns and had more education than I did even. And what we started doing is while we were skiing, we were just taking pictures like with our, you know, snap plastic cameras. We were taking photos of each other, but then we were also starting to take photos of our terrain. Yeah. We'd be on one ridge and we'd look across. This was in the San Juan Mountains, Red Mountain Pass, Molas Pass, Colbank Pass. And we'd go out there and we'd be like on this ridge, we'd be like, I want to go ski that ridge over there. We'd take a picture, mark it on the map, and then we'd slowly compile all these photos together and Sharpie on them. And we were just naming them ourselves because we didn't know if there were names or what the names were, but we were just we were just coming up with the names, you know, Andy's Mountain, Dave's Run, you know, stuff like that. And we made a, a bit of an atlas basically, and it wasn't organized at all, but it was a, it was a bunch of photos. And when the forecast was, you know, considerable on Northeast, you know, facing aspects above tree line, but low, uh, below tree line on South aspects, for example, we'd pull out all our photos and start looking at them and discuss together. And mm -hmm. this was all we wanted to do. Right. So it was just, and we were so new to it and so eager and enthusiastic that we spent a lot of time looking at that stuff. And to this day, I guarantee that is one of the 
greatest things that kept us alive. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, stupid kids mm-hmm. alive mm-hmm. was the ability to look at the forecast and then study the terrain where we wanted to go ski. And certainly we made some bad decisions throughout those times. We never got into big trouble. I never got caught or even triggered an avalanche in all those days. What year are we talking about here? Years? 2000 to 2004. Okay. And did you guys have a sense? I mean, I think that I mean, this is maybe a debatable point. I was about to say that I say this is a debatable point because on the one hand, we do have a lot of new people kind of just wandering out. A lot of AT equipment has gotten so good. Anybody can kind of go. But I think that people who even if you get a taste at all for an Avi One course or hopefully podcasts like this or the rest, hopefully a lot of the messaging is like, be careful like this. You can get quite messed up. What was your sense of that back then, right? In 2000, 2004, your crew, your, your crew of friends, Mm -hmm. did you guys have that awareness or was it a little bit more naive than that? We had that awareness big time. One of the most important things that happened in my youth, well, first was the, that, that mentoring situation I talked about where someone laid it, laid the law down to me at, at age 17 or 18 saying like, you can die out here yeah. very easily if you make a mistake. I took that seriously. The second was as a freshman in college, there was a $10 weekend course mm. with the Outdoor Pursuits program at Fort Lewis. Chris Newt, who now lives in the Gunnison Valley, was the coordinator for the Outdoor Pursuits program. And he took us out and it was just a terrain reading workshop. And all we did was we drove up those three passes I just mentioned and parked and looked at terrain and talked about it basically said if you were to go and ski that hill how would you climb it and how would you descend it what are the things to look out for what are the red flags where is the wind coming from what aspect is it facing how steep is it how many trees are there where is it dense where is it open all those questions and this was like you know the first weekend of the winter like this weekend year 2000 was presented to me. And that really helped check me and remind me like that, A, this is a big deal. And B, we just got to look at all the ski runs you can see from the passes, which is a lot of ski stuff out yeah. there. And we analyzed it and he's basically pointing us like, you can go here, you can go there, you can go there. A lot of people have died here. dot blasts over here. Yeah. I would say it was very present and, yeah. and, uh, and we were super aware. And this was in the early days of avalanche education and um, there was certainly not a lot of communications from avalanche information centers or Department of Transportation, and there was not very many avalanche courses available. There wasn't nearly as much information at there then as there is now, but we were still quite aware. And we were all, I, I'd say we were, took it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For 19 year olds. Geez. Yeah. It sounds like it. It <laughs> sounds like it. I mean, this is like, in a way, it sounds like you kind of got lucky right? In terms of some of the people whose paths you encountered on on this front that not everybody gets introduced to the backcountry <laughs> this way with the mentors you've named and in, and in as deliberate of a fashion. So mm-hmm. pretty good. Yeah. There's, there's an undeniable element of luck. Yeah. That being said, you know, they, they say like, you know, whenever I'm working hard or whenever my eyes are open, I seem to get lucky. Right. And so I think when you're enthusiastic and you're really looking for something, you typically find it and think you're lucky, but yeah. there's, it's a balance, right? Between, between hard work and open mind and, and luck. You know? So 2000 to 2004, you're running around with your friends with disposable cameras, <laughs> taking photos of terrain. 
how then, like, when did you start getting into the guidebook making game? It wasn't for years after that, but that was probably one of the one of the things that inspired it is yeah. because I knew how effective and how important that was. Uh, years out or a couple of years after college, uh, we were ski bumming in the Tetons, same, same group of guys or some of the guys from that group ski bumming in Driggs, Idaho. And same thing. We were starting to use, uh, photos and just taking photos. And now we had a system, right? But they were one step ahead in the Tetons. There's been a photographic Atlas of the Teton pass and Jackson hole Backcountry for 20, 30 years now at this point, some mm. guy took a bunch of aerial photos, printed them in a book, named the bowls or the, the sectors, if you will, of, of each little area. And that was it. There was no explanation of how to get there, um, how to get out of there. Uh, no avalanche information. It was just, here's a bunch of stuff and you'll figure out where it is eventually on the map. And, but it's, it's good to have a, a terrain atlas, right? It's Teton ski atlas terrain. I can't remember what it's called, but everyone knows it up in the Tetons. It's, it's still in print. It's, it's beautiful, black and white. Um, so we were using that and that got the gears turning for me a little bit for sure. At the time I was, I was, uh, working for the forest service and doing carpentry for my dad in the summers, basically, or like when I wasn't at the forest service and I was working on barns in Michigan, actually, it was another way to make money. Let's not even go there tonight, but, uh, it's going to be a good segment though in the Wes Anderson movie, <laughs> yeah. making barns in Michigan with a coon hat on. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I was not, I was not thinking Atlas at all. Yeah. And, and then as I was ski bumming in the Tetons, my girlfriend at the time was in a master's program in Alaska, in Sitka, Alaska, it's for teaching. And she, her name is Gail. She's now my wife. And I was like, when you're done with that master's program, we're moving to the Tetons. This is the best snow in the world. I'm living here. You know, let me know when you're home, babe. And uh, she was like, that sounds great. I'll look for a job there. You know, and I was like, huh, that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she called me and said, I couldn't find any jobs in the Tetons, but, um, but I did find one in Crested Butte, Colorado. And I was like, huh, Crested Butte, Colorado. I went and did a Telemark Extreme Ski competition there once. I uh, don't know anything else about it. You were in a Tele Extreme Comp here? Yeah. You don't um, you don't you don't know that? I just found out about this. I think it was like 02. I think I got like 36th place. <laughs> <laughs> so so, yeah, so just I don't know shy of don't remember. Just shy of the podium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It might have been last. No, it wasn't last place. I was not super good when it comes to performance and impressing people, but uh but I was way into it. That, that was the only time I'd ever been to Crested Butte was for the Telemark ex extreme free ski competition, which is no more. Uh, but I was, I was way into tele skiing and, and I thought I was pretty amazing. But once I saw those guys like hucking off the cliffs and CB, like on the head wall, just like launching the whole thing, I was like, oh, that's not what I do. I ski slowly down steep couloirs, which is not that like double pole planting and like still recycled clothes, like not was not part of the game. I discovered that that year. Anyway, I, Gail gets a job in Crested Butte at the Crested Butte Academy. Uh, and, and she's like, I'm moving there because that's where I got a job. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll go there. And so we moved to Crested Butte. That was in 2005. And we haven't left the valley since. So came here and I discovered right away that it was an amazing backcountry ski mecca. And there was so much and it was very different in character than 
Cameron Pass where I'd grown up and Red Mountain Pass where I'd gone to college. And then there was the Teton Pass thing. And I was used to pass skiing. Crested Butte's not like that. It's a flat, uh, I, I was kind of considered a hub with a bunch of valleys spreading away from it. And you have to go walk into those valleys to see the, the terrain. You can't see it from the road. And that's so I really started snapping pictures from opposing ridges and made my own little atlas real quick for studying terrain. And I was a carpenter. I, I was working for a green builder at the time. And that was, that was my career, really, the way I saw it. My wife was, was teaching. I was building houses and skiing as much as I could. It was, it was an incredible life, really. Um, but I had this atlas at home. And once again, it was not super organized. It wasn't like bound or even, you know, together. And it was just a bunch of photos, basically, in a binder. And my friends started using it and looking at it. And I was like, man, it would be really cool to do this someday. And I was talking with one of the friends from college who was still living in Driggs, Idaho. And one day he said, hey, I made a ski atlas for the Targhee backcountry on the west side of the Tetons. And he showed it to me when we were rafting together. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. It was this eight and a half wide by five and a half tall photographic ski atlas. He did a, he took a flight in a Cessna plane and photographed all the spots and similar to that other Teton Atlas, there was not very much information on how to get to it and how to get out of there, but a little bit more than that other Teton Atlas. It had description or it didn't have descriptions of the runs, but named some runs and some zones. It didn't like draw lines down the face. It didn't draw the skin tracks, but it showed where the skin track was. It was really cool. And I was like, that's what I want to make for Crested Butte. And it became a project of sorts. I've always been into projects and craft. I, I've, you know, I make furniture and you know houses and and all these projects that we, that bone, we do. Broth. Love, bone broth craft is really is is a passion of mine for sure and i saw it as this as this craft and i had no idea if it would work financially and i had no idea that it might eventually turn into a company it was really just i want to make this atlas for crest of butte that's the end game and so i did and that was in 2013. well i decided to do it in 2012 or 2011 and then in 2012 we didn't get any snow <laughs> I think it was 11, 12, it might be 12, 13. I can't remember which year it was just the driest winter since until this most recent one. That's what, that, that's what got me into it and got me started. And we took it once we finally found blue sky and a pilot who was willing to fly that day and low wind and some fresh snow, me and a photographer and my wife all got in the Cessna and took a flight around the Crested Butte area and took a bunch of aerial photos. It was it was really cool. And then we had like 1200 photos and I had to boil them down into this concept I had, which was to make a slight, you know, this small aerial photo atlas for Crested Butte. And it took another year to put that together and find a graphic designer who knew how to get it onto paper somehow and then find a printing company and figure out how to pay for the whole thing. And then I was like, oh no, I have to sell it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so it was, it was kind of stumbling through it really. Like I, I made it and then realized what it, what that meant was, was getting it out there and, and seeing if people wanted it and liked it and if it would be helpful, you know? So that was the start. So, and now, and let's do this part quick because we'll kind of come back to this. Currently, how many guidebooks exist or are about to exist? Because I know you've got a few more coming out. What's the like over under number? You don't know the number. I can tell by the look on your face. <laughs> like, wait, where are we at right now? It's been a crazy year. We've been yeah. making, we've been pumping out products and reprinting. And once we start reprinting and doing new editions, I get a little lost uh -huh. as to what's in print. Anyway, I think we have, uh, I should say by January 1st. So within a month, we'll have 
12 books and seven maps and everything is on the app as well. So 12 books, seven maps. And we should say for people who aren't looking at this right now, this is the book. This is the book. Yeah. The book is a spiral bound terrain atlas. I first called it off-piste ski atlas, which is off-piste is, you know, European way of saying backcountry. And uh, I thought it was pretty clever, but it turns out it's very hard to pronounce and no one understood what the heck I was talking about. And whenever someone would interview me, for example, they'd say, you make off-piste mm-hmm, ski off-pista. atlas. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, so I've, I've changed it to a more readable name, Beacon Guidebooks. But everything, what we call these books is an off-piste ski atlas, which is a, you know, aerial photo atlas of a particular area like Crested Butte, like Silverton, like Snoqualmie Pass, Mount Baker, Crystal Mountain, Buffalo Pass, Loveland Pass, Berthoud Pass. Is that it for now? I think so. Yeah. It's pretty good. Now... Let's get to some of the, you know, fun questions, like the question of like the existence of the genre of the guidebook in general, right? There certainly are some people who are like, cool, Andy seems like a nice guy, guidebooks shouldn't exist, right? I mean, this is like Cody Townsend and I were talking about you and Beacon Books on a podcast we did a few weeks ago. And the last time I saw you, I was like, we got to do a conversation about what you're up to. And so this has all been sort of interesting and fortuitous timing, I suppose. But I'd like to hear you address that, right? We're coming into a season where by every account, we are expecting to see a significant bit of traffic in the backcountry in a lot of parts of the world. Let me hear you as someone who makes these books and maps and atlases, you know, for a living, address the question or the issue of like, maybe we shouldn't be putting this information out there in general. What say you? I think it's a worthy conversation. I think uh, we should we should be asking that question, should we or shouldn't we, but we should move on from it very quickly. I think to talk about guidebooks in general and say, should we or should we not have guidebooks is... A, a very old and tired question, namely because there are thousands of guidebooks out there in the world. There are many other ways of uh, also of telling people where to go and how to get to where they want to go. We have road atlases, we have topo maps, all of USGS, we have all these apps now, and we have so many ways of finding out how to go where we want to go, right? Guidebooks is just one of those tools. So it's, it's kind of a silly question, should there or should there not be? The, the question that's important to me is, what's the best way to do it? How can we make the best guidebook? How can we make the best map? And further, what's our responsibility when we do? That, to me, is the conversation that transcends the, the issue at, at large. It's, it's let's, let's accept some reality. Let's accept that there's more and more people, and there's a lot of reasons that the backcountry is becoming more popular more populated. What should we do about it? Yeah. So let's, let's do this. Let's talk about the responsibility of publishing these books. And then from there, I think we'll go into like, okay, so like what's actually in these books, these maps, these atlases, we're using a lot of different terms, which is kind of fun. We'll talk about that one too, in fact, but yeah, let's talk about that responsibility. Yeah. You know what? And it's a really cool culture and industry to be part of because so many of the entrepreneurs and colleagues that I work with 
from backcountry access to cliff bar to all the guiding organizations that we work with, the ski patrols, the search and rescue teams, everyone that we that we talk to and work with when we're collaborating and trying to make the best book that we can. So many people have this responsibility on their shoulders as they're talking that you can just feel. And none of it is required. There's no government telling us we have to be. There's no parent telling us that we have to be responsible and that we have to be ethical about this. It's just an agreed upon thing um, with so many people in the industry. Not everybody, certainly not everybody, but so many of us. And uh, so that's that's been a really wonderful thing to be a part of, I'd say. We have so many factors that have brought more people into the backcountry, right? We have the increase of tech bindings, the, the increase of the technology of tech bindings, the patents became open for anyone to go out there and make them. We have the increase in population in Colorado and Washington, Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, New Mexico, Montana. That's just people, more people moving there because the job industry was better. We have a more accessible backcountry because snow plowing has gotten better. We have better avalanche education than ever. Every year it gets exponentially better. More people are taking classes. More people have been going guiding, going powder cat skiing, heli skiing. Every year it's more and more and more. And then we have a guidebook. And for some reason, that's the trigger point when everyone says, there shouldn't be a guidebook. It's going to bring more people into the backcountry. And to me, it's it's like, this is, we certainly are also a part of the game, right? There's, there's no doubt in my mind that because of a guidebook, somebody feels more enabled to go into the backcountry. I wouldn't say it's much more than uh, better skin technology or tech bindings or, oh, I mean, I didn't even mention like avalanche transceivers, snowmobiles, Facebook, Oh, the, the list goes on of, of what it has been that's contributing to this more and more people in the backcountry situation. Uh, for some reason, guidebooks is the trigger point. And I think it has to do with we're saying, okay, you've got all that stuff. You got all that education. Go here. <laughs> you know, and I think that I think that rubs people the wrong way a little bit. And I can fully understand that. I completely empathize with it. However, the alternative is secrecy, right? Try to be secret about your location. Try not to tell anybody. First of all, that hasn't worked in most places, most locations. There's more people in the backcountry. Somehow they're still going backcountry, right? Just in volume. The other, to me, secrecy as a policy for backcountry is like abstinence as a policy for sex education, right? For teenagers. It's, it's uh, ineffective and it's futile. And in the meantime, you've missed a golden opportunity to tell somebody import something important about what it is they're about to get themselves into. We're talking about backcountry skiing. Oh, yeah. okay. If we didn't tell anybody anything, I think we understand the consequence. They're still going to go and now they have less information. That being said, we give them some information. We could also get them into trouble, right? And that's where the responsibility circles back to the conversation. And we say, okay, let's really work hard on how to communicate what we ought to communicate. We have a captive audience with these books. They're beautiful aerial photos yeah. and they help people understand their terrain. And so people grab it, they grab the book and they grab the map, they look at the app. And now we have a captive audience. Now we can tell them some really important things. Trailhead etiquette, parking, how to poop in the woods, how to yield to snowcats, how to yield to helicopters, how to handle a situation uh, that you weren't expecting. There's, there's so many things that we can communicate that I'm so glad we have a captive audience for. And people are generally, people want to know the rules, yeah. right? 
there's some people that just want to go out there and raise hell and they don't care and they're not looking at the signs. By and large, the majority of people going backcountry skiing, they want to do it right. And they want to have continued public access. They don't want to ruffle feathers and they don't want to be that guy. And so we try to help help those people. And then we also try to help the most experienced backcountry skiers out there who just want a little reminder of what that slope looks like before they go ski it. Or they're thinking about taking someone new out. And so guides use our, our guidebooks and our maps and mountain guides, resort operations, ski patrollers. They all are, are referring to them for the aerial photos and just because it's hard to get those photos and Google Earth is still not sufficient for most of that stuff. Yeah, and it was interesting. We were talking a while ago and you were kind of saying like, I actually don't even like the term guidebook, right? And you're like, they're decision-making tools, right? Did I, I hope I didn't misquote you. No, you got that right. And I'm still looking for the million dollar word to what to call these things. Yeah. So if you come up with something, let me know and I'll give you royalties. Oh, sick. It's, it's a spiral bound. It, I mean, it's like to call it a book is almost like insulting books, right? It's, it's not, it doesn't have a spine. <laughs> A literal, it literally yeah. doesn't have a spine. Yeah. Figuratively, it has quite a backbone. 45 to 70 pages tops. Uh, there's very little text. We try to really reduce text a lot. We try to let the photos speak for themselves. And and the purpose that really I've I've refined as I've created this company and, and grown is what do people need to know once they've taken avalanche courses, once they've skied a little bit out in the backcountry, and they have learned how to read an avalanche forecast, a daily avalanche forecast from whatever their forecast center is, whether it's the Forest Service, Colorado Avalanche Information Center, Crested Butte Avalanche Center, Northwest Avalanche Center, uh, it goes on. Once they read that forecast, then what? How are they gonna decide where to go? The forecast says, like we said earlier, maybe moderate uh, above tree line and Northeast facing aspects, low below tree line, on all other aspects, high above tree lines, south aspects in the afternoon. Okay, well, where's the southern aspect? Where is the northern aspect? What's above tree line? What's below tree line? Yeah, you can look on a map. You can look on Google Earth. You can look on uh, all the different apps. I encourage you to, for sure. What these are doing, what these tools, these guidebooks, <laughs> atlases, maps, and decision-making tool trifecta that we have is trying to help people look at the terrain that they are considering. Look at the terrain that's that's available to them. If you live in Crested Butte, you're probably just gonna be looking around Crested Butte. All right, we know where the big hazard is because of the forecast. Northeast facing aspects above tree line. Let's find those in the book real quick, in the Atlas. And uh, do you remember the quote from um, The History of the World Part One, Mel Brooks movie, when, when there's they, they call this guy, his name is Demonet but everyone calls him Count de Money, Count de Monet. And then he starts referring to him. He's like, it's not, it's not de Money, it's de Monet, de Monet. And I feel like the same thing with guidebooks. Huh. It's like, I'm like, it's not a guidebook, it's an atlas. And then I'm like, in these guidebooks, we talk about guidebooky things. They are guidebooks. I just try to get away from the traditional and conventional guidebook. Anyway. Maybe we could change the name. We could start calling them the... Beacon Demonets, <laughs> and we just gotta, we just have to make our own new term here and force the world to, you know, embrace it. Uh, all the Gen Xers are gonna love, love that that quote, and all the millennials are gonna be like, "What? Yeah. Who's Mel Brooks?" Yeah, sorry, it's a hilarious movie. 
go check it out. Okay, back to the decision-making tool side of it though. We have um, on the on the top half, once you open up the Atlas, you have on the top half of the spirals, you have an aerial photo of a particular slope. And then on the bottom half, you have a bunch of text. On the top half, we have a drawn skin track, a suggested skin track, and a suggested descents. And then we name the area. And what we do on the bottom half of the page is we talk about the aspect, the elevation. We talk about avalanche hazards of that particular area. And we talk about the skin track, the access to get there if there's anything you need to know about the parking. And we talk about the exit, how to get out of there once you're done. And then we describe the descents. We give maximum slope angles within each descent. We can go back to that. And we give uh, the length in vertical feet of the descent. And so those are all meant to be just tools within this tool that, that should help you. If you've read the forecast, you can say, okay, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a page right now, Jonathan. It's, it's uh, in the Loveland Pass Ski Atlas and it's way above tree line. I can see that because there's no trees. And, I, and I've marked that it's an east-facing aspect and it's a avalanche terrain exposure scale of three. We've got some avalanche notes. And so I know if the forecast says it's a high danger on east aspects above tree line, then I'm not going there today. And it can be as simple as that. That can be the thing that saves your life today. What happens a lot is um, when we're thinking about where to ski tomorrow, we say, I'd really like to ski Let's go back to Crested Butte. I'd like to ski Red Lady Bowl tomorrow. I really want to ski Red Lady. My friends ski Red Lady three days ago. They said it was awesome. I saw their tracks. It looks really good. I want to ski Red Lady. And then you look at the forecast the morning that you want to go ski Red Lady. And you read the forecast. And it's not like cut and dry. The forecast will not say, Red Lady is dangerous today. Don't go there. It'll, it'll give you the facts. Here's what's, here's, here's what the snowpack's looking like. Here's our danger rating. And it might say moderate, it might say considerable. And then it's up to you to decide what you're comfortable with. The problem with wanting red lady to be good today is that you'll use a cognitive bias. You'll use confirmation bias and you'll look for the evidence in the report in the avalanche report that says that red lady is okay to ski today. And you'll ignore the evidence that says you might want to back off of that for today. You'll say, oh, you know, it'll say that the wind loaded from the Southeast last night, and that's going to cause a wind slab problem today. And you'll say, well, it probably didn't blow too much into Red Lady because there's a good bunch of trees on the South flank of Red Lady. So it's probably good to go. And you'll use these, these, uh, mechanisms that humans are prone to, to try to make, make your decision up for you. Alternatively, what you could do is not decide where you want to go at all. You can just say, I want to ski somewhere in Crested Butte area today. Let's look at the forecast. It's dangerous here. It's a little bit safer there. You know, let's stay below. It looks like based on the forecast, we should stay uh, below tree line and northeast facing should be good. And that's, that's good because it's, that's the only soft snow right now. All right, now let's look at the ski atlas and see what's below tree line on north, north, north aspects, and then make a decision, right? And you'll, you'll be much less prone to cognitive bias and, and confirmation bias when you're not trying to get a plan to mold to yours. Nature doesn't have a plan that's going to mold to yours, right? Nature already, well, nature doesn't really have a plan, but nature's nature. It's going to do what it's going to do regardless of what you want for the day. So that's the idea. And that's why I call them decision-making tools is you can look at the aspect, the elevation, 
And then I think that would be a great segue to talk about the eight scale that we use. Yeah. It's a very important piece of, of the ski atlas and the maps and the app. Yep. Let's talk about it. The eight system. So eights, um, is an acronym A T E S and it stands for avalanche terrain exposure scale. And it's invented by, um, Grant Statham among others at parks, Canada in, uh, Alberta. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to help all of us backcountry skiers look at a piece of terrain and define it as it relates to a skier's exposure to avalanches. The way they do that is the way we do it when we're um, characterizing terrain is first of all, we take an aerial photo of a ski zone, of a known ski zone, right? Let's stick with Red Lady Bowl, but uh, just a, that one aspect of a mountain. And then you talk about all the characteristics of it as it relates to what would create an avalanche, the steepness, the aspect, how many avalanche paths are there already? Are there ways to travel through this terrain to that can help you avoid that avalanche terrain? Are there deep terrain traps? Are there significant terrain traps? Terrain traps is, are things like gullies and basins and places where an avalanche can funnel into basically and create, make matters worse. <laughs> and all these other characteristics of a piece of terrain that are fixed. These are not dynamic characteristics in human time anyway, you know, geologic time, these things will move and change, but in our lifetimes they won't. And we define all of those. And then we boil that down to a rating of one, two, or three, simple, challenging, or complex. Simple terrain is terrain that's defined by very low probability of experiencing avalanches, some small avalanche paths, a few small sections where you might be exposed to overhead hazards, lots of options to reduce your exposure to avalanche terrain. Challenging is somewhere in between and it ironically lies is where most of our backcountry ski terrain lies and i'm going to read it from the book because i just butchered simple terrain <laughs> challenging is exposure to well-defined avalanche paths starting zones or terrain traps options exist to reduce or eliminate exposure with careful route finding glacier travel is straightforward but crevasse hazards may exist and so what that means is it's it's terrain that you are exposing yourself to if you're going to travel through it you're exposing yourself to avalanche paths, but there are ways to travel through it to reduce that exposure, not eliminate, but reduce. And that's helpful to know because the next step up is complex where you're exposed to multiple avalanche paths that are overlapping or large expanses of steep open terrain, multiple avalanche starting zones and terrain traps are below minimal to zero options to reduce exposure. If you look at that and and you know that today's forecast is a little bit nebulous and there's some, there's some lurking danger out there. You're probably not going to go into complex terrain. And I think it's surprising when we start studying all the terrain in our atlases and in our ski zones, we discover some surprising things. Some, some zones like the north side of Mount Emmons that I wouldn't have considered complex really, you know, severe consequence avalanche terrain because I'm so familiar with it. Uh, but when I look at it and define it and go through the schematic, it is absolutely complex terrain. Hmm. It is, it's dangerous. And then conversely on like Snodgrass mountain, for example, is a, is an area of all below tree line. A lot of it is very mellow terrain. 
I might have considered it to be simple terrain because there's so many ways to reduce your exposure. But when we analyze it and go through all the, all the qualifications, it's guaranteed challenging terrain. It's, it's more consequential than we might think. Um, we just let our guard down because of familiarity. Hmm. So I find it to be a super useful tool. Hmm. And we use it throughout all of our books and maps and the app and atlases. And, and uh, we, we get a lot of reviews and, and a, lot of, a lot of accolades from Parks Canada for our use of it. And we, we certainly intend to keep using it. It's not used very well in the United States, or it's not used very much in the United very States. Much, it's used yeah. quite well by those who use it. Uh, it's, just, it's just not very popular. So we're still kind of on an education campaign Canada is like ubiquitous. Every, the, almost all of the terrain that you can ski in Canada has been rated. And so you know what you're getting into. Has been rated on the eights scale. scale. Yeah. 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 And where's Europe? They use it. Yeah. Norway is probably the most popular. Uh, they, they use it the most, I'd say. But uh, it's, it's getting adopted everywhere. And uh, what's really cool this year is, is a grant at Parks Canada has been uh, working on a five-point scale. So right now it's a three-point scale, right? Simple, challenging, and complex. And he's been encouraged to adapt it and turn it into a five-point scale. It'll be a zero through four. And so what we've basically done is we've weeded out some of the extremes of each side. So you can travel, you can go snowshoeing in Crested Butte and never be near an avalanche path. And right now we would call that simple terrain, which we've just defined as terrain that you might come across an avalanche path. Well, you might, you won't. There's certain areas that you're gonna go and we can just say like, you're guaranteed, like you travel down this trail, you will not be in an avalanche. And a lot of people would love to know that because they have not received any education. They're from Mexico City, you know, and they just wanna go and not die, right? They just wanna go for a snowshoe. So I think once we've worked with the scale and once, you know, we, we're putting it out there, it's important to to use it to its fullest ability. So that's why Grant has taken the simple terrain and divided it basically. And we now have, we will, as soon as he publishes, we'll, we'll know we have a, a level zero, which is you can travel through here and there are not gonna be any avalanches. That's a difficult thing to say because yeah. as we saw two years ago, some paths got created where there had never been an avalanche in human time. And now there is. So you have to be very confident when you make a zero rating but we're, we're confident that we can at least make, make a zero rating in some places. My house in Gunnison will never be in an avalanche, right? There is such thing. That's an extreme example, but there are certainly places like the Wreck Path and Crested Butte. There's parts of the Wreck Path where you can go and you're fine, right? That's good to know. And then the other extreme of the scale will be the level four, which will be called extreme or something like that. And that's like, we're talking about glacial travel, multiple starting zones, absolutely zero um, ability to reduce your risk to avalanche paths, massive consequences up to D4 size avalanches. That's the big stuff, the big terrain. We don't really have much of that in Colorado. I don't expect to see much uh, level four terrain in our atlases, but in certainly in Canada and Alaska and some of the big peaks uh, throughout the country, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to use that. What it does functionally is it makes that level three, the complex, a little bit more defined, right? We've rooted out the super extreme terrain. If we're calling it complex, it's 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 not extreme. And right now, on a level th on a three point scale, complex also involves extreme terrain. But yeah. we're trying to get that out of there so that you can call extreme extreme. You can call complex something that's a little more complicated, and you have to study it more if you're going to 
go ski there. Yeah. So let's talk about the process of doing updated editions. Are there kind of the top one or two primary reasons that you feel compelled to go back and update some of these? Yeah, it's primarily reason X and Y, or is it like a lot more diversified than that? You know, I intend these all these tools to be out for a long time. I don't consider them to be a book that's in print and might go out of print. If it's out of stock, it just means that they sold faster than I thought they would, and I'm trying to catch up. So the short answer to your question is I, I'll revise it and print another edition because that's what it, that's what ought to be done. We're we're keeping the atlas out there and this is this is a, a tool that's that's staying. It's like an it's like an avalanche transceiver, a shovel. It's it's meant to stay, it's not going away. Uh so what motivates me to refine them and create new editions is uh is all the updated information. We like to add zones that suddenly people are going a little bit further out there and uh, we, we realized there there needs to be some communications discussed with going into this new zone. Or, geez, like in Crested Butte, we, we used to never go snowmobile further out Slate River and and set a secondary skin track up Schuylkill Ridge. We would always, you know, usually just ski from the trailhead and skin up Schuylkill Ridge from the Ob, Ob Joyful campground. And I think as a little bit more traffic has gone there and as, as snowmobile technology has gotten better and snowmobile culture has gotten more traction, now there's a secondary skin track and we should probably put that in the next Crested Butte Atlas. Uh, so there's lots of things. I think, you know, what we do when we do run out of books and sell out is I start, is I go to my authors and say like, hey, what's, what needs to be said in the new edition? What's changing parking rules? What has the, you know, San Juan sheriff's office say about this one parking zone that we've been using, but technically we shouldn't be using it. What is CDOT doing? And so we, we take the opportunity for a, a new addition to update all that crucial information. And we do our best to, to boil that out into a, into a, the next edition. So I'm always excited for the next edition. It's not, it's not because like, I, I want to like increase sales and it's not because it, we need something new and fresh. It's we're selling out and it's time to, to write a new one. I think we should probably, that, that reminded me, I only wrote one atlas and that was the Crested Butte Atlas. And I still am, am the owner of that, but every other location, I'm not the author at all. I'm not the expert. I don't know it very well. I would never claim to know it very well. When I'm helping to publish it, I get to know them quite well, but some of these spots I've never skied on. The uh, What happens is about this time every year, uh, a mountain guide, from a certain area calls me and says, Hey, I like your ski atlases. I'd like to make one for my area. We have some traffic issues at the trailheads. We've got some communications problems. Um, people are just skinning right up the gut of this run that they never used to. I think it'd be really nice to have a guidebook like yours for my area. And I say, great, I've got a bunch of tools for you. I've got these spreadsheets. Here's the process. Here's the schedule. Here's how royalties work. And it'll probably take a year, you know, and Sometimes they say, ah, that sounds like too much work. Never mind. And and the ones who stay and, and say, like, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do it. Those are the authors that that I work with. And I've never actually had to approach a, an author for a new zone. I just I have kind of a line of of mountain guides and and guys, enthusiastic people uh, who'd like to put these out and yeah. they're they're contacting you. Yeah. 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 From from southern Chile through Argentina and Ecuador through Montana and New Mexico. And there's, there's a, lo a long list. I'm still just one guy trying to get these done as fast as I can. Yeah. So man, the, the little kid in the coon hat is 
come a long ways. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the app just because it's been mentioned a few times. So just for people keeping score at home, we've got the quote unquote books, which aren't really a book per se. Um, they're really beautiful. Like we've got the, not a spine, sorry. What are we calling this? They're a ski atlas. We're calling it the, the ski atlas. And then we've got the maps kind of, you would recognize these as fold upable, also known as foldable <laughs> maps. And then we've got the app and talk a little bit about how, like, do all these three things work in concert with each other? Is one, is it more of a like pick your medium? Explain to people how that works. The app is called Rack Up. It's R-A-K-K-U-P. And it is an app that was developed by two rock climbers in Seattle. And they, uh, they were software engineers who dreamed of, of a, a really cool app on your phone at the beginning of the app days just for climbing. And what they invented was a system that they could approach a guidebook author, someone who had already published a climbing guidebook and say, Hey, like, let's just port all of your information into our app and it'll be a climbing guidebook on a phone. But it's not an ebook. It's not like something you turn the pages literally. It actually functions much more like an app. There's a, a topo map that you can layer a satellite layer on. There's photos. And in the context of climbing, it's usually photos of the rock face and then photos of the approach, photos of the belay zone, and, uh, and then plenty of text within that to talk about whatever they need to talk about, right? And then in the climbing side of the app, there's anchor points, descriptions, uh, what equipment you're going to need, what kind of tools, all that stuff. After a few years of that, they were like, this is probably going to work for skiing too. And they talked to um, a guidebook author in California and said, "Could we? what could we do to adapt this to the winter? This was about six years ago. And that's when they transitioned and or grew into the winter side of things. So that still has the same thing. It has a nice topo map and it puts you as a flashy blue dot on the topo map, right? So you can see where you are. Uh, spatially topo or satellite. And then in our case, we have aerial photos of every single run and it's the same photos that we use in our book. And then all the text that's from our book and then it's, it's uh, converted into this app form. So it's really quite impressive and I love how it works. And what happens is you download the app for free, whether it's Google play or Apple store and you, you download the app for free. And that gives you access to their bookstore. And what they've done is they've, they've taken all the guidebooks of, of people who've signed on to this idea and uh, they sell the guidebooks one off for anywhere between like $5 and $20. All of our books are $10 and you buy that and you download it onto your phone and then it is all converted into a sweet little handy app and there's no subscription, there's no recurring costs. Like you have that book downloaded onto your phone for good. It's available for offline use, so you don't need cell signal or Wi-Fi or anything. It doesn't take that much data even. And I really like that model. I thought when, when they explained that to me and said, do you want to be part of this? I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's way better. Like these membership things have been driving me nuts, you know? Uh, I think there's a purpose for those too, and certainly I have plenty of them, but I love this concept. And what one of the best parts of it is that it helps value and give back to the people who have given the information compared to like crowdsourcing apps where someone can just like throw the information onto there and they're not responsible for that information. They haven't been uh, rewarded for it even either. 
and it's just stagnant. We have our authors are in rack up regularly, making sure to keep the information up to date and they're paid for it as they should be. This is, these are guys who have been spending years and years and years documenting and getting to know this terrain and they're sharing the information in a responsible way. It's amazing how much time we spend deliberating over one sentence in our book is, is crazy. When I say like, Hey, you wrote this down. It could be misleading. Someone might take this to think that they should ski fall line. Um, if they ski fall line, we know that they'll end up in that terrain trap. We should probably say something that would get them skiing right. And then he goes, you know, back to me and says, ah, if we tell them to ski too far, right, that's also kind of misleading. We spend a lot of time working on language to make it so that it's, it's responsible. Like we keep saying, it's like, it's, I'm, I'm getting redundant, but it's, it's really important to us. And that is one of the, my favorite things about this app and about these, these books and maps is it's, it's, uh, it shows in the, in the, in the product. I want to ask you maybe to name what happened to be sort of maybe one or two of your favorite books, just because I think answering that question, like the, well, why will help people understand a little bit more about kind of what's happening in some of these books or whatever. But before I go there, I want to ask you about, you know, the fact that you've been in the news a decent bit recently. And in fact, Cody Townsend and I were talking about this, right? Like this issue came up with Steamboat Powder Cats and talk a little bit about, I'd like to hear it in your words, like what the issue was and how that has come about being resolved. And then we'll get to some of your favorites. Yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. Like, you know, 15 minutes ago, you said Cody Townsend was talking about you. And I was like, sweet mic drop, man. Cody Townsend was talking about me. <laughs> and then you're like, it's about the lawsuit. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I'll pick the mic back up. <laughs> yeah. Kick the ground. So yeah, we, we've been working on a guidebook Atlas and map and app for Buffalo Pass, Colorado. That's just outside of Steamboat uh, with uh, the author is named Stephen Bass. And he was a mountain guide with Steamboat Powder Cats. He was also just a skier in the community of Steamboat for years and got to know that area really well. And then, uh, like I just said, with my other authors, he approached me one day and said, we got some trailhead issues. We've got traffic. It's getting worse and worse every year. I think one of these uh, atlases would be really helpful for the area. And I was like, giddy up. That's exactly why, you know, that's, you said the same thing everyone else says, like, let's do it. That sounds great. And I gave him all the tools and he was like, perfect, I can do this. He's really good with GIS. He was, he's the snow safety director for another powder, powder cat operation in Utah. Um, accomplished guide, really, really sharp dude. It's been an absolute pleasure working with him. And like I said, what we do is once we have the book pretty far along, we reach out to other stakeholders like nearby ski resorts, the forest service, uh, department of transportation, avalanche centers. And um, we reach out to them in different ways, depending on what it is we could use from them specifically. But uh, usually it's it's mutual, right? It's like we have the ability to communicate to people where they should park. You know, would you have, would you like to weigh in on that, you know, ski resort? Or uh, people are, you know, people access the backcountry through this gate. Is there anything you want to say to the people who access the backcountry through this gate, you know, in your ski resort? And so usually it's very positive, right? And in this case, it, it came time to say, I was like, we should probably talk to the Steamboat Powder Cats who run a cat operation on Buffalo Pass. We should probably let them know we're doing this and 
see if they if they have anything to say about it do they have any any things they need to tell people about the trailheads or etiquette you know we had since he had worked for steamboat powder cats he put in quite a bit of language in the intro pages specifically about that how to give cats the right away when to give them the right away um, they prefer the uphill side of the of the you know snow road so make sure you you know yield properly uh there's there you know this is they maintain all these snow roads make sure to slow down give them a wave and you know understand that that uh they're a very helpful member of this of this you know backcountry so i didn't i i it certainly hadn't occurred to me that this might be a problem and once we reached out to them and said hey we're doing this you know we thought you'd like to know is you know let us know if there's anything you'd like to contribute or, or add or subtract and we showed them a few aerial photos and a few spreads of the book to give them context. They responded with a cease and desist order saying that we were using their run names and that that was a wrong and illegal. And that was followed by a lawsuit. They, they said, you know, you're misappropriating trade secrets in the name, in the form of using our run names and location names. And Stephen Bass had worked for them and had gained that information this is was their claim since he worked for them he gained the information of how to ski that area through them and then was putting it in the guidebook and therefore it's a it's a he's using our trade secrets he's misappropriating it for financial gain and so that's that's literally what the lawsuit is i'm just stating the facts here and that that it, it really scared me it bummed me out and it really surprised me i like i said like this is you know year seven of this company and i've never had an issue like this people get angry sometimes you know if we've shared their secret or usually when it comes to run names people are angry that we didn't use the run name that they typically use right like it, run names are almost the bane of my existence with these books it's like people disagree about the names yeah. you know the department of transportation has a name for this particular avalanche path but the skiers Nobody have always used this other yeah, name yeah. and it's like it's non-stop the the naming and and now we had a new case where people said you shouldn't use any of these names you can't you can't it was it was it really bummed me out you know and it it, it also concerned me like to set a precedent that any anyone who's named a run in the backcountry can now call me and sue me for damages uh, because i've used a name that they can prove that they've invented or something like it it, it, it concerned me as far as precedent for sure um nevertheless we decided to to honor their request and change all the names. And subsequently, after the lawsuit was filed, we started communicating much more amicably and, and much better. And we've reached an amnesty and we have come to understand each other better. I I had accused them of, of uh, trying to keep people from going into the backcountry and from sharing their spot. And they were trying to keep people out of their public land. <laughs> And uh, I think that was kind of inaccurate, you know, at, at, after learning more about them and getting to know them in conversations. And, uh, and they thought that we were putting out a very irresponsible, unsafe guidebook. And, I, and I'd like to think they have discovered through the process of conversation and negotiations that it's actually going to be quite helpful. So that's the summary of, of this, uh, this situation. And it's what's really nice, the silver lining is that it's, it, it has not come to blows. No one's gone to court. And um, I feel, I think we all parties feel like if we saw each other on the street, we could shake hands and, and understand each other and, and meet each other on the same ground. It was, it's, it's been pretty wild to me to watch as the article about that 
that lawsuit came out and people really got fired up on social media and forums and it really has spread far and wide. It's about names of runs in the backcountry. To me, this is like in the context of, <laughs> of to me, there's some big deals out there. There's some big problems. There's like ocean acidification. There's, uh, you know, you know, child trafficking. There's famine in Africa. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, climate change. These are things that like the climate change specifically for skiers, we should be really fired up about that. But somehow when someone starts talking about runs in the backcountry and sharing them, we get more fired up than anything else. And that kind of shocks me and once again bums me out that here we are a bunch of backcountry skiers all sharing the same thing and would probably agree on just about everything out there yet we're fighting with each other and which i think maybe gets back to this tension that we talked about near the beginning of this conversation yeah. right there is this there is this tension in climbing and in backcountry skiing and to some degree in mountain biking where on the one hand, we do like to have our secret zones. And on the other hand, I think many of us do see the good things about more people coming into the backcountry. And so I think even within the same person, there can be a bit of this tension, you know, the kind of yin and the yang, maybe. And so I think that we're seeing as when you put it like that, it's like, we're arguing, getting super fired up about names of runs. <laughs> I think that it probably does somehow tie back to this, I don't know, a, a, a tribalism or a territorialism about certain spots or something. And I don't know, I think I kind of understand why some of this happens. I agree with you though. Our energies could be better focused on other things. My biggest lesson though is like, Lawyers should never be the first, the first <laughs> response, right? Conversation should go first, right? And I would love for that to be, I think America in general, we seem to be worse at this than many other countries in the world. Leading with lawyers is always a stupid fucking idea, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I think going to lawyers right away is, is certainly not my, my first instinct. Um, I understand why they did and they... In, in, in their defense, they felt like they didn't have a choice. And, and I understand that. I, I get it. And I'm not going to hold anything against them. I'm glad that we've, that we've resolved. <laughs> and, and I'm glad that we, that we can get along and once again start worrying about the things that actually matter in the, in the world. So, yeah, not talking to, to that particular situation anymore, but it is, part of, it is a symptom of a, of a larger problem that you're alerting to, alluding to, which is more people in the backcountry. And there, there is such thing as a critical mass. POW is a finite resource. Once we've skied it, it's gone until the next storm. And in Colorado, that can be a lot of time. And since it's a finite resource, it gains value as it becomes more scarce. And I think that's why we start fighting over it. And so I get it. And I, I feel a lot of the same sentiments that other people feel. And to be quite honest, I have places that I go skiing in, in our valley and area that I'm pretty reserved about sharing. You know, I don't, I don't just go spraying it all over. I certainly don't put it in the guidebooks. Um, and if, but when I see people out there or if somebody wrote it in a guidebook, I'd welcome them with open arms. Like, so be it. This is progress. This is this, like, what can you change and what can't you change? You know? So there's, there's increasing traffic and certainly it's, it's all 
primarily reaching a critical mass near our metropolitan center, Seattle, Salt Lake, Denver, Missoula, and then on the East Coast, it's a whole different game. And I'm, I can't even speak very, very uh, familiarly with that area. But there's there's thing, there's multiple lawsuits in, this, in the backcountry ski industry right now happening and the backcountry guiding world. We're, we're, we're in a new frontier. I don't, I can't really say like what's going to happen. I don't think people are overreacting and in, in what you asked earlier is maybe, maybe there's not, it's not as bad as people say it is. There's a lot of people, how you can measure that and how you can say it's bad or how you can say it's good. Certainly that's more subjective and that's up to the interpreter, but there's more people than ever. And we're still dealing with a life-threatening situation, which is avalanches. I think this year, I know this year there's more people in the backcountry. It's not, we're not predicting a, a busy year anymore. It's happening. The trailheads are, <laughs> are pretty busy and there's barely any snow. It's pretty wild. I, th I think we'll see a lot of traffic this year. That being said, I think we might be overreacting a little bit in feeling like it's all over or that um, it's just going to get worse and worse every year. You have to remember backcountry skiing is kind of hard, you know? <laughs> It's like you got to hike still with gear on your back and sometimes the conditions suck. Like breakable crust sucks. And if you want to go back your skiing, you're like, I'm going back out your skiing. Got a bunch of new gear, got some avalanche education. You go out there and you're like face plant and breakable crust for 800 vertical feet and then go home sweating. Uh, you're going to be pretty psyched when the resorts are full capacity again and open and, <laughs> and all you have to do is go ride a lift. I think we'll see. I think we'll see a crest and I think we'll see a trough after once a lot of people just discover how hard it is and how hard uh, it is to get up to the top. And then we're still dealing with avalanches. Yeah. Like people don't want to die. Yeah. Most of us, most of us want to want to come back home and live. And it's not an exact science. It's still, we're still on the frontier of a lot of snow science and, and psychological science is still like this big realm that we're diving into in the avalanche world. And there is a lot of danger out there. And I think that's going to keep a lot of people out. Um, not all of them. We'll still see more traffic. And unfortunately, I think we'll see a lot of accidents. Um, this, well, we already have, we've seen way too many in the last 10 years. And in the next 10 years, we'll, we'll probably see plenty. And that's, that's the reality of it. But I think as far as traffic goes, it's not all lost. First of all, there's still a lot of space out there. Like I'm not worried about getting out there and being alone this winter. And some people are. So I said, I wanted to ask you about like a couple of your personal favorite guides. Oh yeah. So let's do that. My my new favorite this year so far is the Loveland Pass Atlas. It's it's super cool. We've we've hired a drone photographer to go and get some of these shots that we really want specifically. And he's been taking his name's Alex Newshafer. He lives here in Crested Butte. And he takes incredible photos and he organizes it really well for me. And he works on them, edits them and everything. And and they're just gorgeous. He picks a beautiful day and goes and gets these awesome shots. And that's that's really what shines in the Loveland Pass book. Those are authored by Rob Ritz, who runs the a website called Front Range Schemo. And he it's it's like a you can go and get a lot of this information for free just on his website, but it, it doesn't go with you or anything like that. Uh, so he's been porting all of his website information into our books. And he's super meticulous, very knowledgeable and wise and really good at communicating this stuff he's just been an absolute pleasure to work with so as far as like the ease of publication 
the beauty of the of the book itself and just that final product feeling like it's comprehensive and complete and something we can be proud of that's that's got to be the top right now what i'm most excited about is the olympic national park book that's coming out book map and app all at the same time that's uh so just uh, probably two and a half hours drive from seattle you got to use a ferry i've gone out there a few times with that author his name is matt Seanwald, and he's a mountain guide out of seattle and uh, avalanche educator and a forecaster for the avalanche center wise man and uh, we've gone out there a few times and it's like so cool a boy from colorado like gunnison colorado where it rains you know like eight inches a year and you go to seattle and it's just like pissing rain in the morning you get up in the dark and drive to a ferry and you get on a boat and it's just pissing rain on you on the boat and it's but it's beautiful like sunrise and and then you get to the peninsula and then drive up drive up 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 until all of a sudden you're in you're under like 15 feet of snow is, is next to you on the road and you get up to the top of of a hurricane ridge which is an old mom and pop ski lift have you ever been there it's amazing and you can see the the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the sound and the ocean all from the top of these mountains of Hurricane Ridge. And you take a little lift bump up or hike up, whatever you want to do. And then you're on Hurricane Ridge and there's just like yo-yo runs from there. And you can just like ski down east or west above the strait, looking down at the water and the clouds are dancing, of course, like you're in the thick clouds and it's dumping. And then all of a sudden it's clear and sun's coming. It's like it's crazy it's like the most opposite skiing from colorado and of course it's like super deep pretty stable anyway we've been working on that book and they did a beautiful aerial flight there and you can go way far out in the springtime go out on like five day treks and ski some incredible stuff and what i love what i love most about my job really is looking at these learning this area through a book and just getting excited to ski it like i could i could probably very safely and responsibly tell you how to get around hurricane ridge even though like, i've only been there twice and i'm certainly not an authority on the subject and you shouldn't rely on that by the way <laughs> but the point is i get to know it really really well and it's all uh, just through messing with maps and google earth and these aerial photos and um, taking the information that the mountain guides give to me and trying to boil it down into a little eight and a half by five and a half inch page and uh summarizing editing and i have to go back and forth and like i said we discuss these sentences over and over and over again and it is so fun and then i get to go ski it you know this year i might not travel out there just because of the weirdness but it's it's like it's a dream come true it's so cool to be working on these things tell people where they should go find these demonies <laughs> so yeah I, we probably haven't uh, I haven't done a very good job of this. The company is called Beacon Guidebooks. Beacon like the like a beacon of light or beacon of hope. We don't say avalanche beacon anymore. We say avalanche transceiver. So it really is meant to be like a guiding beacon, like like beacons were meant to be in, in the past, uh, like a lighthouse. Beacon Guidebooks, beaconguidebooks.com. The Atlas is a series called Alf Peast Ski Atlas. The maps are a series called Backcountry Ski Map Series. And then there's the app which is rack up. And I expect we'll have our information on some other apps within this next year as well, which is pretty exciting uh, just to get it on more platforms. Yeah. So you can also find them on Amazon. You can find them at REI. You can find them at almost any local store of, of areas that we cover. Uh, we try to distribute them far and wide. And I really like to encourage people to try to go to their store first because those, those brick and mortar shops are not just 
good businesses to support their their cultural hubs for a lot of people and uh, you can learn a lot and get information that you just can't get on online that being said our website gives free shipping and we we put free cliff bars into every package there you go ship yeah the seasonal cliff bars we got iced gingerbread <laughs> spiced pumpkin pie and peppermint <laughs> they're so good so yeah that's our perk this year cliff cliff is uh um aligned with our with our products and mm. They're, they're super behind it right now, which has been a fun relationship. Well, Andy, thanks for sharing the story. And thanks for the many years of work on these atlases. It really is a cool product. And I'm really hoping by now, if you've listened to this entire conversation, that you've already been on the website kind of perusing and, and seeing you know some of what we've been talking about here. And so if you somehow haven't done that yet, beaconguidebooks.com beaconguidebooks.com you can find reviews and and discussion about it on uh, the wild snow website blog that uh, they've they've reviewed a, a number of these books and kind of discussed the the merits and demerits of of guidebooks and maps once again so it's a good place to learn more and yeah more is coming we got we got a uh, buffalo passes we're getting released this week hmm. and like i said olympic national park Snoqualmie Pass Second Edition will be released very soon, within a couple of weeks here, and then I'm revising the Crested Butte book. I really want that to be like, since that I have control of that. Yeah, I want to put some historical facts in there. Uh, I want to kind of play with it and and uh, make it a unique book this year. Oh, and the most exciting book, and I, I mean this, you have it next to you, is the Avalanche Rescue book. It's a backcountry field guide reference book for avalanche search and rescue. So it will go out to SAR organizations, search and rescue organizations, but it's also meant for recreationalists who've taken their avalanche rescue course. They've taken their ARI 1, maybe ARI 2. They've taken a uh, wilderness first responder or just a you know wilderness first aid course. They've taken some technical rescue courses. They've learned some good knots and how to extract people. But man, that's a lot of classes now. And yeah. this book is meant to be a quick reference field guide for all those things. It's 128 pages written by a woman named Alexis Alloway. And uh, she's done a phenomenal job. It's taken, it's been two and a half years that she's been writing this thing and back and forth and getting peer reviews from the avalanche world. And that's going to be printing within a month here. Huh. It's it's going to be incredible. And it's a bit of a deviation from the guidebooks, yeah. from the, the all this like backcountry skiing thing, but it certainly is in the context, right? And I'm really proud of it. It's going to be super cool. So check that out when it hits the website too. Excellent, man. Well, hey, thank you for the conversation and for the good work. Till the next time. Till the next time. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Talk to you soon. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And if you are enjoying these conversations, we would encourage you to subscribe to the Blister Podcast. Leave us a nice little rating or review in Apple Podcasts and be sure to tell your friends about the show. I also want to say thanks to Andy for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself, and seriously, remember what we talked about at the top of the episode. Go check out blister.getspot.com and get yourself some inexpensive injury insurance before you go get injured. You got to do it before. That's the way this one works. Okay, everybody, take care out there, and we will talk to you again real soon.